If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 36. This morning we will be looking at Genesis 36, um, verse 1 through the first verse of chapter 37. I'm just going to go out on a limb and guess that many of you have not heard a sermon on Genesis 36. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that many of you may not have read Genesis 36 because I know what you do when you come across genealogies. I know, it's no secret. You either skip it or you skim it, especially when you see a bunch of names that you do not know. But, But if we believe that all Scripture not some scripture, but all scripture, if we believe that all scripture is God-breathed, then we have to apply that truth even to the genealogical accounts. And since the genealogies are breathed out by God, that means that the genealogies that are found in scripture are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So while the genealogies are profitable, that does not necessarily mean that they are easy to read or even easy to understand. So to help us understand this better, um, I am going to read through the whole genealogy. Um, But to help us understand it before we read through, I want to go ahead and walk through the outline. So on page five, you can find that outline. I want to just walk through this before we read so you can see some of the things that are going on here. And what you'll notice is there's, I've got it really broken down into two major sections because that's what the text does for us. The uh, first section is found in verses one through eight. And here we have the generations of Esau and really we see Esau's separation from Jacob. Um, This section will include a list of Esau's wives. Um, They'll have their sons. And then it'll also show us Esau's move to Seir. He moves from Canaan to Seir. So in this section, we're going to see two stark differences between Esau and Jacob. Jacob, like his father and like his grandfather, he did not marry Canaanite wives, but Esau did. And just up front, remember, when we were talking about um, this interracial marriage in in the scriptures, it's not about the the interracial marriage, it's about marrying within the Lord. Marrying, and, and so I know that there's a little uncertainty there as we think about who Jacob marries, who Isaac marries, who Abraham marries. However, they're told not to marry Canaanite wives because the Canaanites are pagans. They are ungodly people, um, as we'll note later. So Jacob does not marry Canaanite wives, but Esau does, as we see here. But not only that, so the other difference between Esau and Jacob is that Esau acquired his wealth, his possessions, his wives in the land of Canaan, and then he moves out of the land of Canaan, Jacob does the exact opposite. So the first section shows us Esau's separation from Jacob, while the second section, which is also titled in verse 9, you'll see the same words, the generations of Esau, the same words we see in verse 1, but this section will show us Esau as the father of the Edomites. So verses 1 through 8 really highlights the difference between Esau and Jacob, 
verses 9 through 43 really show us Esau as the father of the Edomite nation. So this section will focus on the fact that they've moved to Seir, they've moved out of the land of Canaan, they've dispossessed the Hittites, or the, I'm sorry, the Horites, um, they destroyed their land, that's why there's a listing of the Horites, um, but it was here that Esau and his people become a company of peoples, they become a great nation. So we'll see a list, we'll see two lists of Esau's sons and their chiefs. We'll see a list of the kings of Edom. And if you just look, uh, the, the list of the kings of Edom is to show us the relationship between Edom and Israel. Look at verse 31. We read here, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So we have, once again, we'll see similarities between Edom and Israel, really Jacob and Esau. And then the generations of Esau are really brought to a close in verse 1 of chapter 37 with a note about Jacob. We see that Jacob lived in the land of Canaan. So this really reinforces the fact that chapter 36 highlights the difference between the two brothers. If you think about Esau, he married wives in the land of Canaan, and then he moved out of the land of Canaan. He moved out of the land of his father's sojournings. While Jacob married wives outside of Canaan. So Esau married wives in Canaan, moves out. Jacob marries wives outside of Canaan and then moves back in to the land of his father's sojournings. So what we have here is the conclusion of Esau's story along with his life in relation to his brother, Jacob. Two twins born from the same mother, yet their lives are markedly different. Esau moves away from God and away from the household of God, while Jacob is the exact opposite. Esau moves away from the promises of God. Esau, so Esau moves away from, sorry, Esau moves away from the promises of God, whereas Jacob moves toward the promises of God. And this is seen in here in Genesis 36 and in 37 and throughout the whole Jacob and Esau narrative, it's seen most clearly in their dwelling place. God promised to give the land to the offspring of Abraham. And Esau shows himself to be a stranger to these promises as he moves out of the land. So with that in mind, I'm gonna go ahead and read through Genesis 36 and then I'll pray for the Lord to help us as we look at this genealogy. So Genesis 36, verse one. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimah, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimah bore Reuel, and Oholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all the beasts, and all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. 
These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the, da- the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basamat, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahat, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These are the sons of Basamat, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. The chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz. Korah, Gatam, and Amalek, these are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son. The chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah, these are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basamat, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah, these are the chiefs born of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hamam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahat, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshbon, Ithron, and Kuran. These are the sons of Azer. Bilhan, Za'avan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Azer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avit. Hadad died, and Samlah of Masrekah reigned in his place. Samlah died, and Shaul of Rehoboth, on the Euphrates, reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place. The name of his city being Pau, his wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places. 
by their names the chiefs Timna, Alva, Jetet, Aholibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. I'll give a second for TJ to catch up. He had to work really hard at this. But this is the word of the Lord. Genealogies are the word of the Lord. Um, sometimes they can be easier to understand their purpose. Other times can be more difficult. But with that, let us pray and ask the Lord for help. So Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Christ by the power of your Spirit. And we pray for help. Pray that you would help us to understand your word. Help us to see the profitability of this passage. As your word tells us that all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by you and all scripture is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. So help us to see this is more than a history lesson. Help us to see the glory of the risen Lord as we have sung about, we've seen witness through baptism. And as we will partake of the Lord's Supper, help us to be prepared. Help us to see Christ. So Father, I pray also for our brothers as they preach this morning in pulpits throughout the region. I pray that the gospel will be proclaimed both here and to the ends of the earth. I pray that you might awaken us to your glorious truths and continue the work you've begun in us. So help us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the book of Genesis, it's not uncommon for us to find contrast between brothers. I mean, just think about Cain and Abel, first brothers we see born. Both brothers offer sacrifices unto the Lord. One's offering was accepted, the other was rejected. As we read in Hebrews 11:4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. So Abel was righteous while Cain proved that he belonged to the evil one by killing his brother. So Cain's life will come to a close in Genesis 4, and we have a genealogy to follow. We have a genealogy of his descendants, and that's the last we see of Cain in the book of Genesis. The next contrast we see is between Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham, he he acts wickedly, Toward his father, he revels in his father's shame, while his two brothers acted honorably. As a result, Ham's son, Canaan, was cursed, and this event was followed by a genealogy of each three sons, and it was Ham's descendants who filled the land of Canaan. Remember, Ham's son, Canaan, was the one that Noah cursed, and then the Canaanites are the ones who fill the land where God will give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
So it's Ham's descendants who drifted away from the blessed presence of God and moved in the direction of wicked cities. I mean, really founding these wicked cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. So the next contrast we have is Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael, as we read in Galatians 4, persecuted Isaac, and he was cast out of the household of God, effectively being removed from God and his people, figuratively speaking, um, as he was cast out. And as with the other brothers who went away from the blessed presence of God, we we see Ishmael's story come to a close, and we have a genealogy in chapter 25. And outside of Esau marrying one of Ishmael's daughters, we see no more of Ishmael. And then the next contrasting account of brothers is the one we've been spending time looking at, and that's Esau and Jacob. The two brothers, they struggled against one another in the womb. When they were born, Jacob, remember, came out grasping at Esau's heel, wanting to be first. As they grew up, Jacob takes advantage of his brother, effectively stealing his birthright and the blessing. And while Jacob manipulated Esau out of his birthright, we're reminded from Hebrews 12 that Esau was a profane man. He was profane, and he considered his birthright less valuable than a single mill. So Esau was an unholy man. He did not value the inheritance that belonged to him as the firstborn of Isaac, and Isaac was the one who was the recipient of God's covenant promises. And so Esau did not value what belonged to the firstborn there, the inheritance. And so we not only see Esau's character as he despised his birthright, we also see his character when he was tricked a second time. When he finds out that he was tricked a second time, turn to chapter 27. In verse 34, we find Esau's reaction to Jacob's deception. He finds out he's been deceived. And in verse 34, we read, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And then he said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But we see this exceedingly great and bitter cry. This bitterness will take root in Esau and eventually it will overflow into a murderous rage against Jacob. He wants to kill his brother. And so while Jacob seemed to be walking in lockstep with Cain and with the evil one, we find here it was actually Esau who belongs to the seed of the serpent. He's filled with murderous rage against his brother, just like Cain. And not only that, we see also, while this is not quite having the same symbolism or the same, I guess, effect, while his murderous rage, he could have killed his brother, we also find that he is walking in lockstep with the evil one as he does exactly what his parents, what his father and his grandfather do not do, and he takes Canaanite wives. Neither Abraham nor Isaac married Canaanite wives. They both married outside of the land of Canaan. In fact, Abraham made his servant swear, do not, what, it's, swear to me that you will not take my son back or take my son to find a Canaanite wife. Make sure that you find a wife for him outside of the land with my kinsmen. If not, do not find him a wife here. 
among the Canaanites. Yet as we see with Esau, he married Canaanite wives. But not Jacob. In verse 1 of 28, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Esau has already taken two wives from among the Canaanites. Jacob is told, you must not do that. And like his grandfather Abraham and like his father Isaac, he takes wives from his family's kinsmen outside of Canaan. So we see this contrast growing more evident between these two brothers as one brother takes wives from the Canaanites and the other would not. And while the two brothers will eventually come back, they'll be reconciled, we still see both brothers moving in opposite directions. Turn over to chapter 33. After the two brothers were reconciled, they part ways. Verse 16, we see here that Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. So Esau is going back to Seir. Back in chapter 32, we saw that he was in the land of Seir. He comes out to meet his brother. Now after they're reconciled, Esau goes back. He returned that day on his way to Seir. Where in verse 18, we see Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. That is the promised land. So as such, these brothers provide us with quite the contrast. One brother is moving toward the blessed presence of God. The other is moving away from it. And just as we saw with the other brothers who are outsiders to the covenant promises, Esau's story is concluded with the genealogy here in chapter 36. After this genealogy, we'll read of Esau no more. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to chapter 36. And here in verses 1 through 5, we see Esau's wives and their sons. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see essentially Esau and Jacob parting ways. So this section shows us here that Esau obtained his wives. He accumulated all his wealth in the land of Canaan. So in verse 2, we've already read it, so I'm not going to go back through everything here. But verse 2, we see at the beginning, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. One of his wives is a Hittite, the other is a Hivite. Those names might be familiar to you, especially if you've been with us here through this study. Abraham, if you remember, he bought land from a Hittite. And then Shechem, remember back in chapter 34, Shechem, his father was a Hivite. So just showing you some of the connections. But anyways, we see here that Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. And then in verse 3, he marries Basamah, who is Ishmael's daughter. So Esau marries contrary to that of his father and his grandfather, while Jacob, on the other hand, walked in the ways of his father and grandfather. Jacob heeded his father's counsel. He went to Padan Aram and found a wife there instead of taking on a Canaanite wife, but not Esau. Esau did not walk in the ways of his father. Instead, he takes wives from the Canaanites. And then he goes to Ishmael and takes a wife from his daughters. Remember, Ishmael was cast out of the household, cast out of the household of God, cast away from the people of God because he persecuted Isaac, as we learn from Galatians 4. So Esau, as we are reminded here, takes wives contrary to that of his fathers, takes Canaanite wives along with a wife from Ishmael. And with these wives, he had sons. And in contrast to Jacob, we see at the end of verse 5, these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. 
The location here matters because it shows us the difference between Esau and Jacob. Go back up into chapter 35, verse 26. After we saw the list of Jacob's sons, we read the same words, but they're the exact opposite, but the same phrase, except it shows us the difference. These were the sons of Jacob. So here in 5, at 36, these are the sons of Esau. So 30, 35, 26, these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. 36, 5, these were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Same phrases, just different words plugged in here because we see the difference between the two sons. It may not sound like a big deal, except for the fact that Esau is moving away from Canaan while Jacob is moving toward Canaan. Jacob's sons, with the exception of Benjamin, were born outside of Canaan. Esau's sons were all born in Canaan, and now they're moving apart. So Jacob will not settle outside of the land of promise. He has children outside of the land of promise. He gains his wealth, his possessions outside of the land of promise. But God has called him to the land. He will not settle and place his roots in Padan Aram. But Esau is the exact opposite. He will not settle in the land of promise. He has his children in the land of promise, acquires his wealth and his possessions in the land of promise, but he will not settle and place his roots in Canaan. And that's the main point then of verses six through eight. We see Esau leaving Canaan. Look at verse six. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. So Esau, once again, as I've already said, he acquired all his wealth, his wives in the land of Canaan, and now he moves away from his brother Jacob. And why does he do that? Verse seven, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. This is reminiscent of Abraham and Lot. If you remember, their possessions were too great for them back in Genesis 13. Their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. So they went their separate ways. But as we consider this narrative, it's not as though Esau went to Seir to give preference to his brother, for he had already settled in Seir. He'd already, I mean, if we went back to 32, we'd see he was already living in Seir prior to Jacob's return. So as John Calvin notes, Moses does not mean that Esau departed purposely to give place to his brother, for he was so proud and ferocious that he would never have allowed himself to seem his brother's inferior. But Moses, so the human author of God's word here, without regard to Esau's design, commends the secret providence of God. So listen to that. Without regard to Esau's design design here, Moses, the author, the human author, commends the secret providence of God by which he was driven into exile that the possession of the land might remain free for Jacob alone. Calvin goes on to say that God directed the blind man, that is Esau. He directed him by his own hand that he might not occupy that land which he had appointed for his own servant. Thus, it often happens that the wicked do good to the elect children of God contrary to their own intention. So as Calvin notes here, it was the secret providence of God that drove Esau outside the promised land. 
The two brothers could not dwell in this land. I mean, this is what we see in, 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 jo- in Joshua 24, 4. God, it says that God gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. So we see right here, we're having the secret providence of God. We're seeing that working itself out. In Joshua 24, 4, we see that God gave him this land. It doesn't tell us that God spoke to him and said, hey, you need to live here, but that God had given them this land. He assigned this land to him. And here we see Esau going there. Verse eight, we see Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. And Esau is Edom. So the nation of Edom, the Edomites, they will dwell in the hill country of Seir. And this is because of the secret providence of God. Esau did not yield to the providence of God. In fact, he was moving away from God's providence as best he could But surely he was no stranger to the promises made to Abraham and Isaac. Think about Esau. He grew up in a home where God was feared and where God was worshipped. He grew up in a home where his father would have most assuredly talked about the promised land. I mean, this was God's promise that they would inherit this land that Isaac, it was given to Abraham, his father, and then to Isaac, and then to his offspring. So Esau, his move away from the promised land signifies his move away from the blessed presence of God. Not that God is bound to any specific location. We know that. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he says, neither on this mountain or that mountain will God be worshiped. So God's not bound to any specific location. However, this location, the land of Canaan, represents God's blessing to his people. But thinking back to God's providence, Esau reminds us that God sovereignly reigns over those, even over those who do not yield to his providence. As Paul said to the men of Athens in the midst of the Areopagus, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The dwelling place of man is determined by God. And we're reminded of that here as Esau goes to Seir, because God would give the land of Canaan to Jacob and his descendants. And Esau, there there would not be room for Esau and Jacob to dwell together. There would not be room for Israel and Edom to live in the same land. There will not be room for both nations to live there. When the Israelites come out of Egypt after, many, after several centuries of, 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 of slavery in Egypt, when they come out, they will inherit this land. They'll fill it up. They'll come out as a great multitude and there will not be room for Israel and Edom to dwell together. I take this as more than just physical room because Israel's to be a holy nation. Edom will be a pagan nation. Light has no fellowship with darkness. Edom will in fact war against Israel later on. But light has no fellowship with darkness. There will be no room for Israel and Edom to dwell together. So before we move on from this section, I just want to circle back to God providentially giving this land to Esau. Quoted earlier from Joshua 24.4, 
God said, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. As I studied that, I just, I thought back to Romans 1. Romans 1.21, we read, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So God gave this land to Esau. And we can pretty much surmise that he did not give thanks to God. Esau is not a God-fearing man. So he's not going to give thanks to God for this land. And this just reminds us how rotten the human condition is. We did not come into this world with anything, yet every single one of us has received so much more than we deserve. And as we think about Esau, he's been given an inheritance, although he does not deserve an inheritance. I mean, he already despised the inheritance that was to be his through his birthright, yet here he is, the recipient of land, I think it's safe to say we could surmise that he does not give thanks to God for this land. We don't know, but it's possible that he feels entitled to this land. We don't know. I mean, he dispossessed the people of the land, kicked them out essentially to take the land. And this just reminds us of the human condition apart from Christ. We're thankless. We feel entitled The human condition apart from Christ rejects God and fails to give thanks to God, but instead takes credit, takes credit. We take the credit. We say, I did that. I did that. This is mine. Now, we don't see this explicitly stated in the life of Esau, but based on the direction of his life, I think it's safe to say that he's not grateful to God for this inheritance of land. He's a profane and unholy man, and profane, unholy men do not thank God, as we see in Romans 1. So what about you? Are you thankful to God? Or do you feel entitled to more? That question, your answer to that question will tell you a lot about your heart's condition. Are you thankful? Or do you feel entitled to more? So that brings us to the end of this first section where we see Esau going in an opposite direction from Jacob. Both men acquire wives and possessions. One man acquires his wives and possessions in the land of Canaan and moves out. The other acquires his wives and possessions out of the land of Canaan and moves back in. And while Jacob will come back to the land, Esau moves out of it. He moves to Seir and he settles there. And as we see in the next section from verses 9 to 43, Esau's descendants, they grow into a company of peoples. They grow into a nation. And so we read in verse 9, these are the generations of Esau. We saw that same phrase in verse 1, and this shows us we have a new section in the book of Genesis. Verses 1 through 8 was primarily concerned with Esau in the land and moving out of the land to Seir, where 9 through 43 is concerned with Esau in the land of Seir. So look at verse 9 again. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. So the emphasis here is upon the nation of Edom. They're in the hill country of Seir. Esau is the father, the patriarch of the Edomites, and this is where they dwell. And then we have a list in verses 9 through 14 of his sons and his grandsons. Just one name I want to point out here is Amalek. You might be familiar with that name. Well, Amalek will be, they become the Amalekites. And so these will be enemies of ancient Israel. And who was the first nation or the first people to wage war or fight against Israel when they came out of Egypt? 
the Amalekites. So just a, a note there. But after this list of his sons and his grandsons in verses 15 through 19, we have a list of chiefs who were born to the sons of Esau. So what we're seeing is a progression as Esau's people, they're growing. So we have his sons and his grandsons, and then we have a list of chiefs, these tribes, as they're growing, becoming a people. These are tribal chiefs, the heads of the Edomite tribes. And this is just showing us they're growing into a nation, they're multiplying. And this should not surprise us because back in Genesis 25, God told Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. Esau and Jacob are the patriarchs of these two nations. And here in Genesis 36, we're reminded of Esau's role as patriarch. Look at verse 19. These are the sons of Esau, and these are their chiefs. And in the middle of that verse, we have a parenthetical reference. That is Edom. Four times, four different occasions in this chapter, we're told that Esau is Edom. And that just reminds us that Esau's descendants become a nation, as God had said. So remember, as we considered before, God is God even over the nations who do not submit to him. All the nations are under his sovereign rule. He determines their boundaries and their allotted period of time. And the Edomites, they will have their day. But eventually they'll lose their national identity. And that just reminds us of God's sovereignty over every nation and people group. He says that he determines the boundaries in the allotted periods of their times. Therefore, we should not fear the peoples and nations of this world. While they have power and authority, they do. Their power and their authority is limited. There's no power and authority apart from God. I mean, Jesus reminds us of this when he tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So return to our passage here. In verses 20 through 30, the section takes a turn and traces the sons of Seir, the Horite. In verse 20, we see that the sons of Seir, the Horite, were the inhabitants of the land. This is the land where Esau will dwell. And what was once known as the land of Seir will become the land of Edom, as we see at the end of verse 21. Esau, as we learn from Deuteronomy 2, he will destroy the Horites. He will dispossess them and settle in their land. But as one commentator notes, the Horites' inclusion in this chapter implies that they were absorbed into Esau's clan and not simply driven out and slaughtered. We don't know that for sure, but we do know at the very least the inclusion of the Horites here in verses 20 through 30 reminds us that Esau inherited this land by dispossessing a people. And perhaps some of them assimilated into their people group. We don't know. But after this digression to the Horites, who were there prior to Esau, the text now moves to, in verse 31 through 39, a list of kings. And this section just shows us the progression of Esau's growth into a nation. Sons and grandsons, then chiefs, now kings. You don't have kings without kingdoms. So you have a kingdom here, and now you have a list of kings. And as we read earlier, before we even read the scripture, I pointed to verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. 
before any king reigned over the Israelites. And then we read about these kings. We read about these kings who reigned before there was a king in Israel. Two observations. One, this is a partial fulfillment of God's promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 17. God told Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And here we see a partial fulfillment as that promise of kings is happening. I mean, Esau is Abraham's grandson. So kings are coming forth from him. But we know that that promise ultimately pointed to the king of kings. And the king of kings will not be born according to the flesh from the descendants of Esau. He will be born from the offspring of Jacob. Jesus Christ will not come forth from the Edomites. He will come forth from the Israelites as God promised. Second observation comes from the relationship between Edom and Israel, as we see here. We learn that Edom had kings before the Israelites had kings. God prospered them made them into a nation, gave them kings long before he did so with Israel. But as we see with the ensuing biblical narrative, Israel will eventually be far superior to that of Edom. Yet this will not happen for many centuries. Edom will grow into a a, a mightier nation before Israel will. They'll be established before Israel will, but Israel will grow and they will far surpass the Edomites. And I would say this ought to stir us up to patient obedience. Our time will come, although it might take a while. Our time might not come till after we depart from this earth, but God will establish his people. Therefore, let us be those who live godly lives and who wait patiently on the Lord. Just like Jacob, God has called us to himself and he will establish us as a people for his own possession. But now there are other peoples who are being established, who are prospering, just like the Edomites were prospering in the ancient Near East. But let us not lose hope. For our hope is not in princes. We read that in Psalm 146. Our hope is not in the princes of this world. Our hope is in the eternal God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. So after this list of kings in Edom, this chapter concludes with the list of the chiefs, the names of the chiefs of Esau in verses 40 through 43. We've already seen a list of the chiefs of the sons of Esau, and there's some similarities here. But this section really shows us the geographic regions where the tribes of Edom settled. That's why we read in verse 43 at the very end that it's according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. This just draws us back to verse nine as we see these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir, and it shows us that this is the land where they possess. If you haven't noticed, if you haven't picked it up yet, the promise of land is an important theme in the book of Genesis. For the land belongs to the covenant promises of God. And as we see here, Esau has moved away from the promised land into the hill country of Seir, which will be known as the land of Edom. 
whereas his brother Jacob returns to the promised land. Look at verse, 30, verse 1 of 37. So Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. That is the conclusion of the generations of Esau. The generations of Esau, we've seen the names, the sons, the chiefs, the, tri- the, the tribal heads, the kings, the regions. And now we see this statement that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. In contrast to Esau, Jacob walked in the ways of his father. He walked in the ways of Isaac, who walked by faith in the Lord. Esau, on the other hand, moved away from the Lord, away from the promises of God. He proved himself to be an outsider to the covenant promises of God. He shows himself to be unlike Jacob, who belongs to the covenant people of God. Esau and Jacob are moving in opposite directions. One is moving toward God, the other away from God. So when we consider the the, the words of Malachi, we should not feel sorry for Esau. God says through the prophet Malachi, is not Jacob, I'm sorry, is Esau not Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Esau was not loved by God. As we're reminded throughout the biblical narrative, Esau wanted nothing to do with God. He wanted nothing to do with God's promises. He moved out of the land of promise. It's hypothetical, but I think we say this safely. If Esau came to God by faith, he would not be rejected. But Esau wanted nothing to do with God. And we could even say he wanted nothing to do with God's people. I'm not giving the power to Esau here. I'm just making a point that God will cast no one out who comes to him by faith. But Esau did not want anything to do with God. He moved away from God. He moved away from his father's household by walking in the ways of this world. He was more interested in dwelling among the Canaanites, walking in their waves, taking their wives in marriage. As such, he shows himself to be an outsider to the covenant of God. Therefore, as one commentator notes, to be outside the covenant is to be without hope of an enduring future. Where Jacob, on the other hand, shows himself to be an heir of the covenant promises. Therefore, he lives in this world as a sojourner. He lives in the land of his father's sojournings. He does so because his hope is not in this world. His hope is in God, in the very God who made the world and everything in it. Matthew Henry, I know you'll be, many of you familiar with that name. He said this, while the Israelites dwelled in the house of bondage, and their Canaan was only the land of promise, the Edomites dwelled in their own habitations, and Seir was in their possession. Note, the children of this world have their all in hand and nothing in hope, while the children of God have their all in hope and next to nothing in hand. But all things considered, it's better to have Canaan in promise than Mount Seir in possession. Israel had the promises. They're God's elect, while Edom had the possession of a place outside of the land of promise. At this point, Jacob, he's a sojourner. He has the promise. That's what he has. That's all he has. But as Matthew Henry reminds us, would you not rather have the promise of God than to have the possession of this world? What could you give in exchange for your soul? 
Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us that, that what, what good would it be if you gain the world, yet forfeit your soul? That's what we see with Esau. And as we ponder Jacob and Esau, a common question often comes up. How do I know whether I'm loved or hated by God? Esau, clearly not one of God's elect. How do I know whether I'm one of God's elect? That's a question that some of you may have asked. Maybe you're asking now. Maybe you know people who are asking that same question. How do I know if I'm God's elect? Well, Scripture never tells us to determine whether we're one of God's elect. Scripture invites us to call upon the name of the Lord, to come to Christ, to repent and believe, to turn to him and be saved. And if this is you, you don't have to worry whether you're one of God's elect. You don't have to worry whether you're like Jacob or Esau. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You know, the the problem we have when we ask that question, am I one of God's elect? How do I know? The problem's often with our focus. When we ask this question, our focus is all wrong because our focus is on ourselves. But our focus, when rightly oriented, is upon the King of kings and his glory. For he is our strength. He is our shield. He is our hope. He is our assurance. Our assurance is not in ourselves, but in God. So when you struggle with doubt and anxiety about your spiritual condition, let me ask you this. Where is your focus? Upon you or upon the King of Kings? In a moment, we will partake of the Lord's Supper. One of the great benefits of the Lord's Supper, when we partake worthily, one of the great benefits is that the focus of our hearts and our minds is taken off of ourselves and directed to the God of glory. The Lord's Supper is meant to lift our focus off ourselves and to look upward to the King of Kings. So at this time, we'll pray to God. Ask him to incline our hearts to him as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would tune our hearts to know your love and grace. I pray that you would tune our hearts to sing of your grace, to sing your praises. Because so often our hearts, they wander away from you. So take our hearts and seal them. Bind our wandering wandering hearts to you. Lift our gaze off of ourself and lift it to you. Lift our gaze off of the possession of this world and look to you and hope in the promises that you have in store for us. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely.
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.